Welcome to Fine Art Fiona, a podcast which shares my conversations with the many artists, curators and collectors I meet on my art travels who, like me, have a passion for art. My name is Fiona McIntosh. Today I chat with Louise Guest, who in the past 10 years of a long-standing career as an art educator has become a recognised specialist researcher, writer and critic of contemporary art in China, particularly that by women artists. Our conversation takes place across Gadigal and Camaragal lands, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. With Louise's introduction to contemporary Chinese art began a passion and respect for the artists and culture from which it has evolved. Her story is fascinating. Hi, Louise. Welcome to Fine Art Fiona. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I thought we should start really at the beginning of your career. The latter part of your career is, has been very much focused on the study and research of contemporary Chinese art. And you describe yourself as a writer, a researcher, an art critic, a lecturer. But you began as an art educator. And it seems to me all these roles that you have and everything that you do is about promoting a better appreciation and understanding of contemporary Chinese art. But I'd love to know a little bit more about art education, what that actually means and what that actually aims to do. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you that all of those things are connected and and I would still say that art education is at the foundation at the heart of, of everything that I do, whether it's writing or speaking about art or indeed, as I do now, working with university students. Um, but my, my career began as a high school art teacher and I absolutely remain passionate about that. I think that to work with uh, teenagers, as I did for many, many years, is the most extraordinary opportunity to, to you know, to introduce um, art a visual literacy, uh, an inquiring attitude towards the world, um, a, a realisation that, um, that culture and visual arts are for everyone and that they should be accessible to everyone and that everyone has the capacity to enjoy, to understand, to engage in the arts. So I think, you know, at, that, at the heart of it is that, um, that belief in the power of art mm -hmm. to... Um, be transformative in, in all kinds of ways, socially, culturally, individually. You know, as it was for me as a teenager. So, did you have a did you have a, an art teacher that instilled a passion in you? Was was that? I did actually, and uh, and two art teachers that I had in high school, I'm still in touch with. Um, one of them is the artist Robert Gordon, who was was very influential yes. when I was in my final year of school. And before that, I was taught by Margaret Bishop and Margaret Bishop and John Dunn run Piper Press. And they, of course, published my book, Half the Sky, about women artists in China. So I, I just think it's a, an absolutely lovely thing to have that ongoing connection with educators who were so important to me, you know, in those teenage years when you're trying to figure out who you are studying art history you know, in the final years of high school was quite a revelation to me. And it's, you know, it's that thing where you suddenly see all the connections. You see, mm. oh, this connects with what I'm studying in literature and it connects mm. with what I'm 
the music I'm listening to mm. and what I'm studying in history and, you know, you start to see all of those interconnections, which is a really exciting thing mm. when young people suddenly have that spark and mm. um, and can make those connections. Mm. Something I've always looked for in my own students, you know, you see mm. that spark in the eyes and think, aha, you know, there's really something going on there. It's quite wonderful. So what were you looking for to further inspire your students that took you to China? Well, I guess, I mean, for a number of years, because I was um, particularly interested in teaching art history to senior years of high school and and, and had the, um, the good fortune to, to focus on that, um, I was really interested in what I saw in exhibitions like the Asia-Pacific Triennial in Brisbane, which I mm-hmm. just thought was a revelation. It was just so exciting to see that work. Every three years it is so exciting. Absolutely. I so, agree with yeah, you. yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. that really, I guess, opened my eyes to to the fact that my own art education, because of, I guess, you know, the generation that I am and also my experiences had been so Western-centric and I was seeing work in Brisbane, you know, every three years and then here at the White Rabbit Gallery when it opened mm-hmm. in 2009 that was really unlike anything I had seen before mm-hmm. in Europe, in America or, or here, and I was just intrigued by it. I also could see that it was the kind of work that students were going to find really interesting. The first work that I saw by Ai Weiwei here when the Sherman Foundation brought him to Australia with mm-hmm. that work, um, I thought, look, this is, this is something that is going to be so intriguing to students um, and I need to know more about it. So I began to read a lot more and try to learn more myself about um, uh, contemporary art in China and Japan and, and I guess across uh, Southeast Asia as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was sort of like catching up really Mm -hmm. from having such a Euro-American focus in my own art education before that. Mm -hmm. And then how did you get to China? Had you been to China? How did you get to China? I had never been to China. Do you speak Mandarin or Cantonese? I didn't then. (laughs) I was really fortunate that there was, and I think there still is, uh, a New South Wales Premier's Travelling Scholarship for teachers mm-hmm. in a number of areas. And I had learned about it through other colleagues who had uh, gone on various travels with this scholarship. And I just thought, look, I'm going to give this a go. And uh, in the year that I applied and was lucky enough to be awarded the scholarship, it was um, sponsored by a Chinese company, the King Gold Group. So it was very specifically for travel to China mm-hmm. for a research project that was related to art education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I put in a proposal Perfect. and mm. I got it. And I just loved it from the moment that I arrived. The, the research project that I had um, uh, been successful in, in getting the scholarship for was to interview artists so that I could then produce learning materials um, for teachers in New South Wales schools. So the idea was that, you know, it's really important, I think, for students to hear artists speaking about their work in their own voice, mm-hmm. um, to have that sort of very direct connection with what an artist is doing, what their intentions are, how their practice has developed, you know, those mm-hmm. sort of things, which is, you know, you don't find in a textbook, of course. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so part, of the, the part of the research was to look at what's 
the status of art education in China and how is it that they're producing these extraordinary artists who are making, you know, work that is unlike anything anywhere else in the world. Mm. And part of it was to, to meet and to interview artists. Now, you know, I had never done an interview in my life before I went to China. That openness, you go to something with that sort of openness, no preconceptions, and, and you just absorb things in the most wonderful way. Well, I think so. And I think, you know, it was uh, an experience that was so unlike anything else, so unlike anywhere else I had ever been. Um, I also think that it's not unconnected with the way that women can reinvent themselves when their intensive parenting years are over and their children are grown up. And I felt that that was my opportunity to do that. It almost returned me to the sort of sense of adventure that I'd had as a young woman travelling alone, you mm. know, and, and here I am as a, as a much older woman. In fact, one translator that I hired to work with me in Shanghai um, probably the second year that I went back to China, he said, well, I don't know what you're doing travelling around China at your age. In China, women of your age stay home and they give their money to their families. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> so, you know, there was a degree of curiosity about, about I'm me sure. being there. Mm. Yeah. That first trip, which was for six weeks, and it was in um, initially Hong Kong for a couple of days to meet artists there, then uh, I think three weeks in Beijing, um, another two weeks in Shanghai, and then sometime in Guangzhou, um, you know, all places I had never thought that I would ever go to at all, much less be on my own, you know, meeting artists, recording these interviews. Um, what I found was that the artists were so open and so generous with their time and so respectful of educators. But I found the doors were open to me. They were immensely respectful of what I wanted to do and, and of the fact that you know, I wanted to introduce their work to students here in Australia. And I was so touched by that. And the I've always found that in, in all my subsequent visits to China, the openness of people, the generosity mm-hmm. of people, um, and, and that respect for mm-hmm. the educator, I mm-hmm. just think, you know, is so admirable. Um, and, and it was a little unexpected. So I met very, very young artists and, and you know, artists with significant mm. international careers, and all of them, I felt, were just so generous and so um, they were interested in the idea of, of talking through me to students in Australia. So I'm interested in a couple of things in your wish list, how you devised that wish list. Without probably any contacts in China, did you talk to curators here? Was it just cold calling? And then what was their experience or understanding of Australia? You know, did they did these artists have connections here in Australia? Had they been here? You know? Oh, that's an interesting question. So in terms of creating the list, um, I, I uh, had been, of course, to all of the exhibitions at White Rabbit. Yes. Um, to that point. Um, so that was, I think, by that stage, maybe three exhibitions. And I had a list of artists that were particularly interesting to me. And um, the wonderful Phyllis Rowlandson, who managed the tours at White Rabbit, was really helpful in um, 
providing more information for me there. But I also found a number of scholars, international scholars, really helpful as well. So I went to China having already set up, you know, a, a particular sort of itinerary of interviews. But I think that the wonderful and remarkable thing about China is the serendipity of it all, because the minute you're there, everybody says, oh, but you must meet so-and-so and come with me, we'll eat noodles, and then you can meet so-and-so else. And then, you know, so I just uh, ended up meeting many more people. And I must also say I'd seen an exhibition at Stella Downer Fine Art, and Stella put me on to the wonderful Tony Scott, who is now a dear friend, who was running from Beijing um, China Art Projects. And with China Art Projects, he was um, exhibiting the work of Chinese artists in Australia and Australian artists in China. Mm. So, there, I mean, there is, of course, a, a really long history of connection, art connections between Australia and China. And then, of course, once I was in Beijing, I met Brian at Redgate Gallery, Brian mm -hmm. Wallace, um, and, and, you know, how wonderful it is to discover that the very first private art gallery in China after, you know, the Mao years was uh, opened by an Australian boy from Tari um, and opened in the um, extraordinary surroundings of one of the ancient watchtowers on the old city wall of Beijing. So Redgate Gallery operated until... Uh, probably two years ago or three years ago in this, you know, quite incredible um, surroundings of this old watchtower, the Dongbianan watchtower. So Brian certainly has had uh, a really big influence on those Australia-China connections mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and on the development of um, contemporary art in, in China and particularly in Beijing as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the, all of this happened kind of immediately. How did you condense this extraordinary experience into, you know, something that could be the basis of part of a curriculum for art teachers back here in Australia? What, what was oh, it that well, you were perhaps looking what, for and then found? What I did was I, I took those particular interviews and I then, when I returned, I wrote case studies around those interviews that could be used with students at different age groups. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I had had a deal of experience in curriculum writing and so on prior to that um, and shared that through, you know, various conferences mm. and, and professional networks. So those things all kind of got disseminated. But the thing that had happened while I was there was that I started to be aware that, um, you know, I had certainly arranged interviews with some women artists um, and they were fascinating. And from what they were telling me and from what other people started to tell me, I just got more and more interested in this idea of, you know, well, where are the women? I started to ask um, particular gallery directors who shall remain nameless, where, you know, how many women do you have uh, on your list of exhibiting artists? How many women do you represent? And, and a couple of them said things to me like, well, I've never even, it's never even occurred to me to ask myself that question. Um, none, you know. So I became really interested in that and that's what I guess was the, the beginning of wanting to write this book. So, you know, the whole journey was, as you said at the start of our conversation, about interconnections. So I'd gone to China, you mm. know, wearing my hat as an art educator 
Um, I'd been totally fascinated by experiences like spending a day at the Central Academy of Fine Arts in Beijing, looking at how they were teaching um, undergraduates and postgraduate students. I'd been into quite a lot of high schools, both international schools and local schools in different cities, and that was very interesting. Um, but at the same time, I knew that I wanted to write about this experience, and I'd, I'd always loved writing myself, but I'd never thought of myself as a writer, you know, or as a professional writer. But I began to write a blog, um, which I called An Art Teacher in China, which I, mm -hmm. still exists, although I'm um, a bit slack about updating it. Um, and because I was writing this blog, um, it generated some interest and I was then approached by other people who were interested in, you know, republishing some of the posts or asking me to write articles. So I began to write and, and found that I couldn't stop writing. I just, you know, really enjoyed that process. I began with this idea that I wanted to write a book. So, you know, I thought about that. I, you know, approached various people um, and I then thought, you know, I'd, I'd speak to John and Margaret at Piper Press and see if they were interested because they were publishing beautiful books about Australian artists. And, and thankfully for me, they were, and they took a chance on this, you know, untried, untested writer. Then in 2013, I took some long service leave and I took up a writer's residency through Redgate Gallery, which runs both artists and writers' residencies. And I stayed for three months in this tiny apartment in Tuanjiehu uh, in Beijing um, and, and really intensively focused on studying Chinese as well. So I went to class for four hours every day in the morning and then I went off to far-flung ramshackle artists' villages on the outskirts of Beijing every afternoon and, and recorded interviews with artists and you know, immersed myself in the galleries and in talking to curators and critics and so on. Um, and then went back twice more the following year for more sh slightly shorter um, writers' residencies in Beijing. So, yes, Beijing is my first love in China, but I've come to very much love Shanghai as well. It's mm -hmm. such a, a different city and the two art centres are very, very different. So that's fascinating as well. So before we get into... Um, what the book is, what the book focuses on, the book Half the Sky. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about what the art scene looks like in China. Um, what we see here in Australia, or what I guess I've seen here in Australia, those extraordinary works that come into the Asia-Pacific Triennial, the Art of New South Wales, um, and White Rabbit, I'm always amazed at the scale and the scope of the work, not just what they say about contemporary Chinese life or issues that individual artists are dealing with or their own stories and personal journeys, but but how they use materials, mm. how they obviously work in the studios with um, assistance to create something that is enormous, you know, painted bronze. I mean, mm. for, a, for a Western artist to create a bronze of that size and then to turn around and paint it, it would mm. it's probably almost sacrilege. Or then something that is so infinitesimally minute that you wonder at the dexterity, you know, the, the physicality of creating mm. that. And then where is the or are there networks of commercial galleries that can present the works? Is there a coterie of local buyers? You know, how, mm. how does the system work 
you know, by comparison to ours, I guess? Uh, I guess, you know, over the last 10 or 12 years, what I've seen is, is a massive change, actually. So it took time from, you know, the, the 1990s when contemporary art from China was suddenly very visible in the world's art ecosystem um, for uh, the sort of art infrastructure to be built up in China. Um, but it's extremely sophisticated now. And, you know, even when I was first there in 2010, 2011, um, buy local buyers, Chinese buyers, were generally not buying contemporary art. They were very much interested in, in um traditional arts and, and crafts and objects and antiques. But, but that has changed. There is a, um, a coterie of very young, very smart, highly educated, very savvy uh, art collectors in China. Um, and the uh, gallery system and the, you know, burgeoning private museums that are opening, new, new museums open every week in China. Um, some of them odd and many of them fabulous. Um, and that has developed, again, to, to meet the demand of those, of those particular, um, you know, art collectors and, and, and just simply those who are really interested in contemporary art. So, you know, when I go, I'm always amazed by the numbers of young people who are flocking to places like the 798 Art District in Beijing or to... Um, the big shows at um, the Yulin Centre for Contemporary Art, UCCA, which has just opened yet another branch in Shanghai um, and is showing, you know, both international and Chinese contemporary art. Um, so the, the level of knowledge about contemporary art has increased really dramatically just in the last 10 or 12 years, I think. Um, you know, how, how that continues is interesting because obviously there are significant pressures, increasing pressures on artists, scholars and intellectuals, um, and, and yet that, that transcultural dialogue, you know, is nothing new. It, it's continued since, you know, at least the 18th century um, with, a, with a sort of 30-year interruption um, between 1949 and, and 1976. Um, but that... that Dialogue continues. I think that one of the things that distinguishes contemporary art in China from contemporary art elsewhere is the fact that uh, despite the fact that artists are working in these very contemporary idioms, they might be working with video or new media or installation um, and, and at the sort of cutting edge of technologies, yet what we see is the influence of Chinese culture and history in their works. And you actually mentioned the physicality of works and the materials that are used by artists. And that, to me, is one of the most interesting things. So artists in China, from the emergence of contemporary art after the Cultural Revolution, were really interested in reinvestigating traditional techniques and traditional materials. So whether that was, you know, elite practices like ink painting or whether it was folk art traditions like paper cutting or um, the, the history of woodblock printing, for example, all of those things have been brought to bear on contemporary art practices. And one of the things that happened that I think is particularly fascinating and 
and, um, you know, an indication of, of how things evolved in China is that at the Central Academy of Fine Arts in Beijing, um, they had a, a department of folk art. And at some point that uh, in recent history, that department of folk art became the Department of Experimental Art. But the curriculum of that department still required artists doing an MFA to go into the countryside, to go to rural areas and learn from the rural farmers the traditional techniques of whether it was paper cutting or whether it was a certain kind of woodblock printing or paper making or, you know, paper gorge making, and to then find a way to um, bring those traditions into their contemporary art practice. Once the, the doors opened in China in the reform and opening era from, you know, the, the mid-1980s, um, you know, Western influences just flooded into China in, you know, whether that's, you know, McDonald's and, and Levi's jeans or whether it's also art and, and philosophy. And while that was really embraced by some artists and it contributed to art movements like political pop, at the same time, a lot of artists were very critical of that and were thinking, well, you know, th there's a risk here that we're actually losing our significant Chinese long art history and cultural history by just embracing willy-nilly these, you know, these influences from, from the West. At the same time as there was this influx of foreign influences, there was also a, a really intensive re-examination of Chinese traditions. And that continues now in, in the work of younger artists like Yang Yongnian or Sun Shun. Mm -hmm. And I think I find that really fascinating because it really distinguishes Chinese contemporary art from, you know, contemporary art from America, from Australia, from Europe. Yeah, I'd say generally from Australia. That That is that is actually the, the one of the things that I, I am fascinated by and respect enormously in what we describe as contemporary Indigenous art in this country is this ability to adapt and evolve and change and embrace but remain rooted in, you know, mm. core traditional values, visual markings um, and and stories and, and how you bring ancient traditions that are deeply meaningful at the core of culture, how you bring them um, into a 21st century time. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating. Well, that's that that such an interesting point, Fiona. I think you're absolutely right. Mm. And um, there is there is a really interesting parallel mm. there, I think. Mm. And, and certainly, you know, that's also interesting because um, artists in China, uh, I find, are fascinated by Indigenous art from mm -hmm. Australia. And that is what certainly artists that have visited here uh, from China that I've spoken with here, that is what they want to see. They're really interested in that, you know, continuing tradition and how it's become a contemporary practice. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's really interesting. There's there's a kind of synergy there that's mm. that's fascinating, I think. So going back to your book, which I sort of, uh, this is sort of a bit of a segue, I guess, because talking about, you know, traditional Chinese culture and then your book, which is focusing on Chinese women artists, and I guess in the West, we've been talking about women artists really for the last, well, specifically the last, say, 40, 50 years since the rise of, of an overt rise of feminism. And yes, we're still looking to redress um, the imbalance in representation and collection, 
you know, I'm thinking the Countess Report, um, first instigated by Elvis Richardson, who I spoke to recently, mm. and the recent Know My Name, hashtag Know My Name exhibitions. But the way you've you've referenced people talking about this idea of Chinese women artists that they don't necessarily exist and yet they obviously do, is that something <laughs> that is rooted in traditional culture? Uh, now, there's a complex question, which is, in fact, the topic of my PhD thesis to ah, a large degree, ah. um, which is, you know, it is fascinating. And I think, you know, as I've said, when I first started going to China and interviewing artists, I was very much coming from, you know, uh, I guess a Western-centric gaze. And in trying to raise the uh, conversation, raise conversations with them about feminism, I always found that that very difficult and there was kind of a sticking point. And I, I vividly remember having a conversation with Gao Rong, who's a wonderful young artist, uh, a sculptor who uses embroidery in these very large-scale installations. Um, and I said to her, you know, Gao Rong, you're, you know, she'd already told me that she was um, intrigued by the work of Tracy Emin when she was studying at mm-hmm. Harper. And I said, you know, you're, you're using this, this domestic uh, traditionally female craft practice to to make these wonderful installations about everyday life. Um, are you doing that deliberately? Is that an intentional uh, act to, you know, centre uh, the work of women as a sort of feminist uh, statement? And she said, no, it's just that I'm really good at embroidery, that's all, and sort of shut the conversation down. Now I'm much more aware of the fact that, you know, China has its own very long history of feminism. Um, but it's been on a on a different trajectory than mm-hmm. feminism in the West, and there are there are complicating factors that include, for example, the fact that, um, as we know, uh, probably apocryphally, Chairman Mao said women hold up half yes. the sky, and he also said a whole lot of other things about that, like you know that that the times have changed, women and men are the same. Probably we're not surprised to hear that women uh, may have been holding up half the sky and driving tractors and going down coal mines, but they still had, you know, the, the, the large lion's share of the domestic burden, the child-rearing, etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, a whole lot of women have said to me, we got, you know, after that period of time, we were exhausted from holding up half the sky. It was exhausting. And there was a kind of retreat, I guess, in, in art, certainly, um, from women artists who had, in fact, been painting, you know, Soviet socialist realist yes. heroic workers and farmers uh, to um, scenes of the domestic, you know, mm-hmm. to still life, to to portraiture, to other things. Um, and part of that came from that, I guess, a reaction against that period of gender erasure. And then part of it also, so some of that was about reinvestigating what, what does it mean to to be a woman what is what is femininity what is the feminine mm-hmm. what is the female uh, and the first feminist text to be translated into Chinese was uh, Simone de Beauvoir the mm-hmm. second sex and it was really influential but it, but women responded to it in really interesting ways that were about you know I'm I'm going to now think about you know my gender in a different way I'm going to think about what it means to be female in a different way 
Then in the 1990s, there was a real interest in feminism and particularly in feminist art. And there were a lot of exhibitions in Beijing of art by women. Uh, so, you know, specifically female, all female exhibitions. And some of that was presented in a, in a slightly problematic way, you know, a little bit essentializing. The, the critics would write about, you know, uh, it was called Nu Xing Yishu, women's art, but as if it was um, very different from the art of men. The focus was, you know, they said, was on the emotional and the subjective and right. the personal and the, you know, et cetera. Maintaining stereotypes. So after a time, you know, women think, well, that, you know, that's a kind of apartheid, you know, that nobody's talking about men's exhibitions. So there was a resistance then on the part of a number of women artists to, you know, to be kind of, um, I guess, siloed in that mm-hmm. way as something very separate. So I think... You know, my position now is that, you know, there there are now and there always have been, you know, extraordinary women artists in China, working in China, often well-recognised, making very successful careers, but so many of them have either slipped out of or have have never been included in the the narratives that have been written Mm -hmm. about the development of contemporary art in China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having looked at Know My Name and spoken to um, Elvis about the Countess Report, I mean, none of this is surprising to any of us. This is yeah. all, you know, feminist art practice 101, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. what has happened. And I think there are there's a, a, a huge number of young, very feisty artists in mm-hmm. China, both men and women, who are probably looking at gender in a different way. So they're they're not very interested in binary definitions about gender. Maybe to finish, maybe we just have a little bit more of a chat about your book, Half the Sky, mm-hmm. and and it is described as conversations with women artists. Yes. So it's, it's, it's an extension of your original research trip, a distillation. How have those conversations that you may have had with artists or those particular artists or, or different artists at the beginning, how have your conversations developed and become more nuanced and, and expanded? Oh, that's a great question. And I think, look, conversations continues to be at the heart of my practice as a researcher and as a writer and I guess also as an educator. And I think, you know, there are a number of, of feminist researchers who have positioned conversation between women at at the heart of what they do. And it's a different way of constructing knowledge, I think. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing the book, you know, it it developed out of that very first research project, which was conversations with artists about their practice, but directed towards an education Mm -hmm. focus. And what I wanted to hear from women was about, I wanted to hear how their lives and their experiences as women in China had informed their work. And, again, what astonished me was their openness, their generosity. You know, people here, I think, always assume assume certain things about China. And and one of the things that they assume is that artists are either they're all dissidents like Ai Weiwei or they're all completely crushed by the, you know, the, the censorship powers of the state. And, of course, neither of those things are true. And the artists tread a... A careful and very clever path so that they navigate through that, through all those various pressures to, to make the work that they want to make. 
And again, what I found was that the women were so open. And I think part of that is, uh, I guess, the way that I approach the conversations. It's also the fact that I'm so obviously really interested in what they're doing and that I've, you know, uh, I come to a point where, you know, I feel that I, you know, have a degree of understanding Mm. of their practice, both Mm. material and conceptual. And so they're incredibly open about talking about it with me. And I think a lot of it does come down to this idea about conversations between women. Um, And I don't want to sound as if I'm being essentializing, but I do think there is a difference. Um, And I don't think the conversations would have taken the same form had I been a male writer, Mm -hmm. researcher in China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, we can't, there is no universal feminism. There's no universal experience of womanhood, of course. Their experiences are very unlike mine, um, and particularly those women of my generation because they grew up in high socialist China and they lived through the Cultural Revolution and they um, are often still experiencing the trauma of that to some mm-hmm. degree um, through their family history. So I'm not attempting in any way to say there's a there's a you know a commonality there, but there is a certain level of understanding I think, and that um, that allowed me to um, to present the book as a series of conversations. But what I wanted to do was to put those conversations within a context of the historical, social, and cultural factors that were influencing their work, and so through that encourage those women give those women a space to speak for themselves um, to a different audience who may be totally unfamiliar. Yes. So it was very deliberately not an academic book. Mm -hmm. It was very deliberately intended to be accessible to a a Mm -hmm. general readership, Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope that it is, Mm -hmm. Um, um, but also just to present uh, a series of, of women artists who I think their work is extraordinary, very, very different, so women of three generations. Um, women working across a very wide range of, of material forms, mm-hmm. um, and but to make connections between them, which is the, you know, the way that I um, arranged the chapters. But I also thought it was important to, uh, to some degree, to place myself into the narrative, you know, to say, you know, which is why I've included little, you know, vignettes about, you know, hair-raising taxi rides outside of Beijing to a particular artist studio, just to give that sense of place and time and to perhaps make it seem more real. I guess what I really wanted was to um, convey to readers here some of my intense excitement about what it's like to be in Beijing and to be in artist studios, you know, the the smell of the oil paint and the pouring of the tea and the barking of all the dogs outside and the whole you know, the whole gestalt. (laughs) Share that sense of wonderful discovery, which is exciting. Well, that was my intention. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Louise. I've really enjoyed learning more about contemporary Chinese (laughs) art and learning about what you do. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you, Fiona. That was such a privilege to gain such fascinating insights into the contemporary art scene in China. You can find the links for Louise Guest and her recent book, Half the Sky, Conversations with Women Artists in China, on our show notes. And for information on other episodes, go to our Instagram page, Fine Art Fiona. Conversations on the Fine Art Fiona podcast are created by Fiona McIntosh and produced by Simon Grant. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>